Okay, we're all ready to go home. <clears throat> turn with to me with uh, or turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter four. The uh, I had ambition to do the entire chapter, but we are going to finish with verse sixteen. So today, <clears throat> this past week, a young man in Uvalde, Texas after killing his own grandmother, entered into a grade school, murdering 19 kids and two adults. The grief and the pain and sorrow of this one man's actions are unthinkable. Only this is not the first time that this has happened, has it? The names Columbine and Sandy Hook are engraved into our hearts as well. Politicians will point their fingers at guns or mental illness or lack of education. I don't presume to know the motivations that drove this man to commit such evil acts. I'm not sure that I even want to know. But the capacity of human beings made in the image of God to commit terrible evil is not new. In fact, it has been happening from the very beginning. The very first son of Adam and Eve murders his own brother. The story of Cain and Abel will not explain everything to us about mass killers today. But surely God's word does have much to teach us. And we would do well to pay attention. Not so much to understand what we call sociopaths, but to understand ourselves. If you would, follow along with me a very familiar passage of scripture, the story of Cain and Abel, Genesis 4, 1-16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. 
And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so! If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The story of Cain and Abel begins in a very unassuming way. Adam knew his wife, speaking of sexual relationship in the marriage, and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. With the birth of a baby, there is new hope. It is a time of rejoicing at the coming of new life into the world. Eve is truly happy that Cain is born. Cain is a gift from God. Eve has born him with the help of God. And I will tell you, there are no omens in this story, that Cain will turn out to be an evil man. You know, Jacob and Esau, the older will serve the... Nothing like that here. We go into verse 2. Eve bears another child, Abel. We're not told anything about him. The only detail that we're told about either of them is their occupation. Abel is a shepherd, and Cain is a farmer or a gardener. I want to stress very clearly both occupations are honorable. There is no hint that one occupation is more valuable than the other in God's eyes. In fact, if you go through scripture, you can find passages that describe God as both a a shepherd and a gardener. No difference there. That's not the part of the story. But while both occupations are valid as a means of serving God in this life, there is more to offering God acceptable worship than giving Him something of what we possess. That's a very important statement. There is more to offering God acceptable worship than giving Him something that we possess. In this passage, we are given the first glimpses as to what God requires if anyone is to enter his his presence and receive his blessing. This is the beginning of that. And we are also given, in this story, fallen man's reaction to not being accepted by God. Verses 3 through 5, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering. 
of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and in his offering he had no regard. And the very first thing that we need to understand in this passage is that God determines what is acceptable worship. Both Cain and Abel give offerings to God, but both offerings are not received by God. Before we get into the whys of that, try to put yourself in the place of Cain. What would it feel like to you to bring an offering to God and for God to say, I don't want your offering? give you a very human analogy a young man takes interest in a young lady after much internal grief and self-doubt he works up the courage to ask her on a date he decides to buy her some flowers before asking her out but when he approaches her she wants nothing to do with him or his flowers what are the feelings that go through that young man now, I know that the reasons why God does not accept Cain's offering are very different than the, the, feeling, the reasons for this young lady. I get it. But the response of your heart is something very similar. You are feeling rejection by God. Emotions can range anywhere from dejection to anger. We ask ourselves, what is wrong with me? Simultaneously, we become angry at the one who has rejected us. Add to this scenario that God accepts the offering of Abel. And in the very imperfect analogy, what if your younger brother goes to the same young lady and asks her out and she says yes? Now it's not only that she has rejected you, but now she's accepted your younger brother. Now you're really ticked. Your anger is not only towards the lady, but it is also towards your brother. Who does he think he is anyway? Does he think he's better than me? I don't care. You love that statement, I don't care. That means they really do care. I don't care. She can have him if she wants. I want nothing to do with either of and I'm telling you, every one of us in a thousand different scenarios hate to be rejected. It hurts our pride. Now I again stress that God's not accepting Cain's sacrifice is not on the whims of he likes one better than another. I, that is not why God chooses what is interesting in this story is we are not explicitly told why God chooses one or the other. And this has led to all sorts of speculations. Believe me, if you have the resources that I have to look at what people have said about this, I mean, there's at least 30 different explanations as to why God accepted one and not the other. I think if we didn't have passages like Hebrews 11, which we'll get to later, we'd be left in the dark. 
But we do have the rest of Scripture, and we do have other passages that help us understand this passage. But we are going to have to wait to get to those. That's more at the conclusion of this, okay? For now, I want us to just follow the flow of the account. Cain has been rejected. Notice it's not just his offering that's rejected, but Cain is rejected. And Cain responds with anger and his face fell. That's dejection. That's discouragement. That's, you know, just it hurts inside. He's angry and he's dejected. Cain feels the weight of not being good enough. It's the opposite feeling that you have when someone comes to you and gives you praise. Right? I mean, how do you feel when someone says, great job, that's awesome. You feel warm inside, you feel affirmed, those kind of things going on. Cain's reaction is understandable, but I will tell you that Cain's reaction is motivated by pride and selfishness. God's intent with Cain is not simply to make him feel good about himself. You see a lot of connections to our society. It's, oh, help them to feel good. Just, just at all costs, make them feel good about themselves. And I'm a big guy for praising young people. There is something that is seriously wrong about Cain and his offering. And unless that is fixed, Cain will experience untold suffering apart from the presence of God. God knows this. He is more concerned that Cain get fixed than that Cain just feel good in the moment. Now, where do we see Cain's pride and selfishness? Well, remember back in chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, they uh, began to know good and evil. And I, I, we talked about what that meant. They were deciding for themselves what is good and what is evil. Instead of submitting to God's standard, they were choosing what they thought was best. They were acting autonomously. They didn't want to submit to God's standard. We kind of see this attitude in two-year-olds. Very few kids find it easy to submit to the wisdom of their parents as to what is right and wrong. Is that correct? It's not uncommon for kids to throw a temper tantrum all because they are convinced that they know better than mom and dad as to what is right and what is wrong. And usually their idea of what is right is what they want. And by the way, adults do the same thing. We're just better at disguising it. God communicated to Cain that what he had offered was not favorable to him. It was not good. The anger of Cain stems from his being told that he needed to change. Change his attitude, change his behavior. If he has to conform himself to God's standard, admitting 
the wrong of what he had done. And throughout this story, Cain refuses to admit his own wrong. Instead, Cain responds in a very proud way. Who is God to tell me that my offering is not good? I know what is good. God, you're expecting too much from me. I tried. I did my best, didn't I? But what might a humble reaction have looked like? Cain might have simply said, God, why have you not accepted my offering? What do you require? What do I need to do to change? The psalmist in Psalm 19 says the same, a similar attitude. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We should come to God approaching him with humility, asking him, what is it that you require of me? And I want to do what you want me to do. And the truth is this. Anyone who approaches God in the way that God prescribes will be accepted. Peter tells us this in Acts. He says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but every nation, in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. It's almost like he's pulling the same words off of the Genesis passage and saying them to the Gentiles who are receiving Christ. Cain's anger boiling up is an expression of his pride. He is not humble or broken before the Lord. He does not recognize his own unworthiness before a holy God. All he can see is that Abel has been accepted by God and he is not. And Cain is selfish at the same time that he is proud. He is willing to tear down others to feel better about himself. Are these attitudes ringing true with us? Do we not do these same things? He makes himself to be the victim and justifies his own evil thoughts toward God and Abel. And of course, God does what every good parent would do. He sees his son being manipulative, trying to get his own way, and then he's only concerned with making his son happy. No, God doesn't think that way. God confronts the lies that are swirling around in Cain's head. Verse 6, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? He's asking him, what's going on here? He's exposing to Cain the lie that Cain is believing. Cain believes that it's God's fault that his offering was rejected. He believes that he has done nothing wrong. And God says, you need to rethink this. I'm not the one at fault, you are. God tells to him, if you will change your attitude, if you will change your, your attitude and humble yourself, you will be accepted. God is telling Cain clearly that there is a path to acceptance. Now what it, do, what it means to do well 
is not explicitly explained. I, I grant you that. But how hard would it have been for Cain to say, oh yeah, by the way, what does it mean to do well? He could have simply asked the question. That's what the, the uh, people at the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached his sermon and they said that they had he said that they had crucified the Messiah. They said, what must we do to be saved? And he says, repent and believe and you will be saved. Cain doesn't want to know what he needs to do. And so, what does God do? Any, any good parent would do exactly what God does. He tells him that sin is crouching at the door and it is ready to own him. I find this enlightening on several levels. One, in Genesis 3, who's the enemy? Satan. In Genesis 4, who's the enemy? Sin. Now, I think that both of those are enemies that we have, right? Sin, Satan, the world. Those are the three enemies of the Christian life. But here, there's no, oh, the devil made me do it attitude. It's just sin. That which is living in your heart is seeking to overcome you and conquer you. And you must Fight against it. Of course, God already knows that Cain is ready to kill his brother. He knows that he intends to do this, that he's already premeditated to do this, and God is confronting him. He calls him to repent of his, this heinous act that he is ready to commit. God calls each one of you to fight against the evil that lives in your heart. Some of the sweetest memories that I have as a parent of young kids is telling my kids no. And they'll tell you that I didn't tell them no maybe often enough. I don't know. But I did. there were times when I did it. And I could see them fighting internally with themselves. Almost visibly, outwardly, I could see them squirming within to try to master the emotions that were going on inside of them and to not let those emotions conquer them. That's a very real thing. There's no such wrestling in the heart of Cain, I can tell you that. No one naturally submits to God. If you see your child actually struggling to master their emotions, praise God for grace. Because it's his spirit that is giving them a desire to fight against their sin. That is not what Cain has here. And I would tell us all that repentance is not the removal of all evil desires. It is fighting against them to not rule over. The statement, you must rule over it, is in the imperfect tense. It means it's ongoing. We're never justified in simply going along with sin. We must choose to fight against it. God gives Cain hope, but Cain does not want it. It would require humility 
of admitting that he was wrong and his pride will not let him admit he is wrong. And so he is cold and indifferent to the call to repentance. This may be the only outward call of repentance that is given by God himself. Usually we think of the preacher calling someone to repentance and God secretly calling them to truly repentance and faith. But here God gives the outward call and Cain does not respond to it. Very quickly in verse 8, Cain rises up against his brother and kills him in the field. And I just want to say, could you even imagine in one generation such an atrocity? One generation. It's hard to imagine. On one level, Eve and Adam are to blame for this sin because they're the ones that brought sin into the whole world. But on another level, Cain must own his own sin. He is living according to the dictates of his sinful heart and his pride and his arrogance, and he is accountable for what he does. And parents, I can't stress enough. Teach your kids that they are responsible to fight against sin. But also, tell your kids to not be shocked when there are inner evil desires in their heart. So often kids are afraid. They feel that evil desire within them. And they don't want anyone to know that that's there. And I'm telling you, let them know. Let them know that there's still evil desires in your heart. So that they know they fight against them. And we're fighting against them together. Fighting against these desires with the help of Jesus Christ. Not on our own. It's a shocking thing for kids to realize that their parents are foul too. But it's important for your kids to know that. Otherwise, what's the point of going to Jesus? I mean, your kids naturally think that you are perfect. At least they start that way. All right, back to the story. Cain has committed this terrible atrocity. The sin has been committed. You cannot take it back. He's done it. It's done. You can't go back. How is God going to respond? He comes to him, moving towards him, just like he moved to Adam and Eve, and he says, where's Abel, your brother? Mind you, God has no obligation to speak to Cain at this moment. Cain deserves death. He would have been fully justified in casting him into the pit of hell right then. Instead, God mercifully gives Cain the opportunity, even now, to confess his sin and to repent of it, seeking forgiveness. But rather than any true brokenness and humility, uh, Cain again acts in selfishness and pride. Am I my brother's keeper? He denies his sin. He knows that he has just murdered his brother, but in his pride he has justified his actions. His response to God is nothing more than an attempt to avoid the consequences of his actions. That's the difference between true repentance, which hates the evil, and false repentance, which is, I just want to get out of the consequences. I would tell you that apart from the working of grace deep in the soul, no one will truly repent. Every response that people has will be like that of Cain. 
God goes to Cain in, this, in, in verse 10, and he says, what have you done? Now, this is, an, this is not a question. This is not like God doesn't know what he's done. He's trying to, again, motivate Cain to think about what he has done. Don't think about what I didn't accept you in that last offering. Don't think about other things. Think about yourself. What have you done? And no one comes to repentance without a serious consideration of their own actions. And then God says to him, the blood of your brother is crying out to me from the ground. And what is that blood crying? What what is it crying to God? It's crying justice. It's screaming justice. Dear God, put it right. I have been unjustly murdered. Put it right. Whatever you think about the punishment that God gives Cain, it is not the execution of justice. God does not immediately kill Cain. Nor does God command Adam to kill Cain. Even though justice requires it. Genesis 9, 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God declares to us that when you kill someone in cold blood, there is the requirement of your life being taken. God makes him a wanderer. God makes the ground less fruitful for him. But he is not executed. God has been firm with Cain, but he has not exacted justice. He has been merciful. And how does Cain respond to God's mercy? I can't bear this. It's so hard. Cain does not think of his own wickedness. He is so blinded by his pride that all he can think of is this is going to be tough. He doesn't even think that I deserve death. And I think Cain's fear of death is actually produced of his own sinfulness. There was no murder before Cain murders. But what is it that Cain fears? The act of murder against him. You fear the things that you have done. Be a betrayer. Be someone who's not faithful. You will always fear other people betraying you. It just works that way. Cain's heart is clearly unconverted. God could at this point have said to him, death is nothing more than you deserve, you scum. But that's not as how God responds. His response is shocking. I'm telling you it's shocking. And we just read right over it. We don't even see it. Instead of killing Cain like he deserves... God says to him, I will put a protection upon you that if anyone kills you, I will bring vengeance on them. Is that not shocking? Now, we don't know exactly what the mark was. It was either assigned to other people or it was assigned to Cain that God was protecting him. That's, that's it. That's all I'm going to say on that. God acts in kindness towards Cain. God knows that Cain from him will develop a very ungodly line. 
We'll look at that next week. He, he knows that bad is going to come. And he still acts in mercy towards Cain. Why would he do this? Well, a couple reasons, I think. One is that they, God has already said that there's going to be an ungodly line and a godly line, and they're going to be warring with one another. That's already prophesied, so he, that's part of it. But I also believe that it is God understands and sets the principle that it is his mercy and his kindness that leads people to repentance. Romans 2 says that very much. So the blood of Abel continues to cry from the ground today. The blood of Abel is still crying out to God, justice, justice, justice. And it will not be fully satisfied until Jesus comes again and judges the living and the dead. But here's the beauty of this. The blood of Abel does not only speak of judgment. The blood of Abel also speaks of promise to those who look for mercy. Even such a terrible act as the murder of your own brother can be atoned for. In the shedding of blood there is forgiveness. Now we get to the point of exploring why God accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's. God did not accept Abel because he was good or even because he was better than Cain. If that, would, if that were true, then we would not need Jesus. If, Cain, if Abel's offering was accepted on any other basis than the blood of Jesus Christ, we would not need Jesus today. Just be good enough and you're accepted. You know what would be? There would be no hope of salvation. No hope for Cain, no hope for us. You see, Abel does not look to himself or his own offering for to be accepted. And Hebrews 4 makes that, or Hebrews 11.4 makes that clear. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. And it says there, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So I take that as Abel is also speaking to us today that there is the blood of another who can atone for your sin. And what better than the first one murdered who is telling you, trust in Jesus and your sins will be forgiven. The writer of Hebrews clearly speaks of the death and resurrection of Christ and the blood of Christ, and that's what we put our faith in. It's not just that Abel had faith, it's that he had an object of his faith in which he was trusting. And that has to be none other than Jesus Christ. But you say, where do you find Jesus in Genesis 4? And I would say that it really comes from Genesis 3. There are two things. There is a promise and there is a sign. In Genesis 3, the promise is that there would be someone, a child of the woman, who would come and destroy the serpent. And I believe Abel must be trusting in that promise. Secondly, there is a sign. Remember, Abel, or Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves with their, with their garments, and God says, not enough. 
and he sheds the blood of an animal and covers them so that they can be forgiven. And I believe that that sign is a picture of the future blood of Christ. If you were an Israelite on that, you know, hearing these words, God had just given the Israelites the whole Levitical law, told them how much they need to shed blood in order to be accepted by God. And all that's clear to them. This, you would have said, oh, this is the foundation of that. That blood must be shed if there's going to be forgiveness. There's nothing wrong with a grain offering they're given in the book of Leviticus, but they're never given independent of the blood offerings. The blood offerings are foundational. So on one level, you can say, well, yeah, Cain, he just didn't give the first fruits of his crop, but Abel gave the best. And I think that's important to us. We certainly need to give our best as we try to walk with God. He doesn't want half-hearted worship. But if you miss the blood, you're missing out on what's going on here. It's not about just how good Abel is and how bad Cain is. Every person, every person who has ever been accepted by God has been accepted on the basis of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no other way to offer to God any sacrifice that is acceptable. And the blood of Abel cries out, not just to be avenged, but it also cries out, that the blood of Jesus satisfies the justice of God. Now here's the here's the little bit of the hard part of this. The good thing is that this is a promise. You're sitting here today, I don't care what sin you've committed. The blood of Jesus is better. It's bigger, it's stronger, it's it's able to cleanse you. But here's the bad side. Not the bad side, just the hard side. If you reject trust in Jesus, the blood of Abel is crying out justice against you. And you will suffer God's vengeance at the end. Hebrews says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. He's talking about the blood of Abel. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. The blood of Jesus is saying, you can be forgiven, but walk away from me. Don't, Don't take your sin seriously and you will be judged. Cain ignored God's promise of redemption, and he will endure eternal uh, wrath of God for it. What will you do? What will you do? Will you place all of your hopes in the blood of the Lamb, or will you refuse Him? Will you think that it's His fault for not accepting you? Are you trusting in Jesus alone for your redemption, or are you trusting in something that you do? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Two main points. 
We are from this moment forward to struggle against the sin of our heart. Being a Christian doesn't mean you still don't have to struggle against sin. We fight against it every day. But secondly, you are fully accepted before God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And as we sing this song in just a moment, you should feel the joy of saying that I can rise up. I don't have to have my face down in dejection. I have the blood of Christ crying out, forgive him, forgive him, love him, accept him. And that blood enables me to rise up and say, Lord Jesus, I love you. Thank you for accepting me. Take me as I am. Change me. Make me who you want me to be. That's the gospel. Abel preached it at the beginning. We preach it now. And it is the truth. Amen.